right, welcome to the Lebanese Physicians Podcast. This is uh, episode number four, uh, and today I will be interviewing uh, Dr. Wael uh, Al-Marashli. Uh, Dr. Al-Marashli is currently an associate professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. He specializes in uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial uh, treatment and diagnosis, and also in intensive care. Uh, Dr. Al-Marashli, uh, how are things uh, today in San Diego? Uh, hi, Khalil. I mean, Dr. Diab, sorry. Um, no need to call me doctor. No need to call me back. doctor. Things back here in San... Is it okay to call you Khalil, or do we have to keep it professional, Dr. Diab? No, you can call me Khalil. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, things are beautiful, sunny, and uh, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit right now in San Diego. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful winter here in San Diego. Pretty similar to, to D.C. It's beautiful, <laughs> sunny, but uh, 36 degrees Fahrenheit. But you know, we get used to it. 70 is like summertime for me right now. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Marashli. So, uh, so tell us a bit about yourself. Like, How did you get uh, to UCSD and, and, and where, where were you born? How were... Uh, uh, and and how how's, how's your connection to Lebanon? Sure, uh, uh, sure. Yep, we'll start from the beginning, I guess. Uh, so, I am um, uh, I am Lebanese American. I grew up in Dubai. My parents moved to Dubai when the civil war broke out in 1975, as as did many um, other Lebanese of their generation. And um, so, I grew up in Dubai in the 80s. Went to school there. Graduated from high school in the mid-90s, and went to AUB, the American University of Beirut. And um, I ended up living in Lebanon for nine years. I did my undergraduate degree uh, at AUB, and then my medical school degree, um, along with a year of internship at the American University Hospital. Um, after that, I did, as the vast majority of the medical school graduates did in the early 2000s, we left the country. Um, as we've all experienced, it's like our, our medical school or our country is a conveyor belt, producing doctors and, and exporting them to other countries, mostly right. the U.S. Right. Uh, so after um, after I left the U.S., I um, I came to uh, after I left Lebanon, I came to the U.S. to start a residency in internal medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, Iowa, uh, right in the Midwest. Yeah, I remember we were living uh, next to each other in the apartment, that small That's apartment right. building at the time. Uh, apartments, and I don't uh, know if it's appropriate to share some of the stories that no. we encountered during that. No. Perhaps, perhaps this podcast is, is not made for uh, uh, for that sort of thing. No, no, but, no, no. Yes, we, we did overlap for, for a year before, uh, before you moved to Indianapolis at the University of Iowa, uh, along with many of our medical school uh, friends uh, who were in Iowa City at the time, which made it easier for us, I guess, it softened the, the culture shock of, of, of moving to Iowa City. Right, right. But I ended up living in Iowa City for six years because after I finished my three-year residency, I was chief resident for a year, and then I was a, a, an academic hospitalist for a couple of years before I decided uh, to um, pursue a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. And um, I came to the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, because I loved the program, I loved the city. Um, uh, I liked the idea of moving to California. That's basically as much thought as I... Uh, as I placed into my major career decision of moving yeah, to UCSD. Yeah, 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 I remember those days, um, yeah. Yeah, and so I did my pulmonary critical care um, fellowship here, graduated from that in 2012, um, took six months off, and then joined faculty 
at UCSD in January 2013, and I've uh, and I've been there since. Okay, okay, and and do you feel? And, and I know I know you from before, and I know that throughout this uh, process and throughout those years, you've been uh, closely connected to Lebanon. In fact, I think you were uh, one one of us who used to uh, visit visit the most and have uh, the most connections uh, still over there. Uh, is that true? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I never went more than four to six months without visiting Lebanon. I mean, during the years, yep. um, at the very least, I was going twice a year to Lebanon, once in the summer, once over the holidays. There were a couple of years here and there where I even went three times uh, in one year, and, and that's um, no small order, as, as you can tell, the, the, um, to travel so long, um, so many times a year, and this is, you know, part of... Uh, other travels that I made during the year. Right, especially uh, so especially was, from California. Especially from California, it's 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 a very long. Uh, especially travel. from California, but the first six years were in Iowa City, um, but that's not. I mean, maybe geographically it's closer, but it's not really really much easier to travel from from the from a small city like Iowa City. Right. But yeah, right. whether it's from the Midwest or from California, it is uh, quite a. a Quite the trek. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting. I mean, yeah, someone like you, it's interesting to me just because you grew up in in Dubai and spent uh, a big portion of your life there, and then moved to Beirut, where you spent maybe only seven or eight years uh, in Beirut, but you still uh, felt a strong connection, even though your parents even uh, lived in Dubai. So, what what do you yeah. think? What do you think produces uh, that connection to Lebanon? I mean, all of us, I think, have that uh, close connection. And we don't. I don't know what the force is. Do you have any any insight into that? What the yeah, force that is, is. Uh, that is correct. I lived in Lebanon for nine years. My parents still live in Dubai to this day. Yep. Uh, but all my long distance treks were were to Lebanon. I mean, I, I did visit Dubai here and there, but it was mostly back to Lebanon. And as you've, um, as you know, as you've uh, observed, I developed this connection to Lebanon, despite the fact that I didn't go up there. Um, it's hard to say. You know, there's. Um, a lot of philosophizing that's going to go into uh, me figuring out what, what it was. Um, you know, first of all, it, it was the time in my life that I spent in Lebanon. It was kind of, it, it formed a lot of my personality. Uh, you, you know, it was basically my late teenage years and my early 20s. I made a lot of amazing relationships at AUB. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, so many of the friends that I made at AUB are still very close and very close contact with to this day. Um, I became closer to my extended family, my cousins, aunts, uncles, um, and Lebanon, despite, um, despite, despite Lebanon, despite the way it is, the chaos, the corruption, the frustration, the anger and rage that's going on every day. Um, it, it, I just recently read read, uh, read a quote. Um, Lebanon is somewhere that you hate and that you love a thousand times each day. Um, you, you know now now, I never went back to work in Lebanon like 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 you did. So um, I was going back for visits. That's different, right? I can block out. The, a lot of the frustration and, and, and the rage that you might experience living there and having to earn an income and raise a family there. So I was shielded from those. I would go and, and have a great time with my friends and family and, and catch up. Um, but the, the, the bonds that, that I formed um, with the country and, and 
and uh, the relationships uh, that I formed were kind of strong enough that, that if I stayed away for too long, I, uh, um, I'd miss it. Right. Um, right. That's what I have. That's superficially what I have so far. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think we all, and, and that's one of the reasons I decided to, to go back. And even, I, I mean, I can tell you that even working there was nice. I think it's just, it's just the way uh, the country is run uh, is what, what drives you uh, yeah, that's interesting. It drives you, you crazy. Uh, you know, the, you, you worked there for, for a couple of years, and, uh, you know, I was, uh, we were communicating, you and I, throughout, uh, throughout that experience, you know, for, um, at the very least, because I was extremely curious to see how your experience would go. Yeah, yeah. You, you were like a guinea pig that we, <laughs> <laughs> that we sent out to test it out and see how it goes to see if it's even feasible. And, you know, we expected that, you know, you had, you, you had, you know, there were a lot of pros and cons, but specifically the work situation, um, I don't know. I mean, did, did you feel that uh, the relationships perhaps that maybe are formed with staff in general in your workplace are a little bit different? No, I, I think it's more of a uh, work becomes more of a social, uh, social thing uh, over right. there. So you're for more deeper uh, deeper social relationships. For example, I would be walking next to the cafeteria at Riza, and then this uh, surgeon who I'm st I still talk to till this day, he would like call me from inside the cafeteria and be like, Khalil, come in, let's drink a cup of coffee now. I'd be like, you know, I have some work to do. He's like, no, no, just, just half an hour only, 15 minutes, no worries. And so this is like some of the things that, uh, that used to happen there and uh, that made things more, uh, more social. Uh, and made your day maybe less uh, less stressful and less tense, I think, despite uh, yeah. everything no, that I was happening imagine. in the country. I mean, you, know, the, you know, my colleagues here are, are all amazing, are all amazing people. I'm, I'm very lucky for where, where I ended up. Yep. Um, but, you know, uh, just from, from my experience, um, uh, you know, having studied there, and, and I, I guess I, I worked as an intern for a year, and just speaking to all of you guys, um, I would imagine that, uh, on average, the relationships are a little less formal uh, in, in, uh, in Lebanon. Right, right, right. It's they're more they're more loose and more social. So, but but that's not to say. I mean, I also love all my colleagues over here at uh, at GW where I work now, and uh, and I think it's just a different culture and different kind of relationships that you form, and probably part of the reason a lot of us are drawn back uh, to that culture. I think Perhaps. Uh, of connectivity. Perhaps part of it are the difficulties that we have to confront every day in Lebanon. You have to form those strong relationships because you have to have them to maneuver that, this chaotic country. You, you have to help each other out, you, you, you know, otherwise you, won't, you wouldn't survive. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is the subject of a thesis and can be gone into in, in much more depth. Uh, this is, you know, superficially an impression that I had that Perhaps that's one of the reasons the bonds may be so close there, whether they're family, family bonds, friendship bonds, uh, and, and, and uh, professional bonds, is because you need other people. We all need each other to maneuver the, the, the difficult, chaotic, and corrupt society. Yeah, right. You know? and, and, and I mean, that, that's one of the things you end up forming. Is you, all the time, you, you call people to get things done. It's not like you do stuff online and stuff like that. And, and I always, even till now, people... For example, ask me, do you know somebody who supplies oxygen in Lebanon? And then I have the numbers of those people. I tell them, all right, this is the number of this guy. Just call him, tell him, Khalil Diab sent me to you and he'll take care of you and stuff like that. So 
these are things that are these are priceless. I mean, that's uh, that's sad and heartwarming at the same time. Right, right, right. You you feel that you shouldn't need to kind of uh, try to figure out where to get oxygen when there's patients who need oxygen. Yeah, you know. But at the same time, you know, there's there's the the human connection that helps you out. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. I think that's the situation there right now at this point. But but I know well that you were at uh, one point in time, even when you were in in San Diego or at Iowa, even you were still involved in some or at least participated in some of the protest movements that went on in Lebanon uh, back in 2011 and, and onwards. Uh, can you tell us a, a bit about uh, those protests and why you decided uh, at the time before the country even went into this bad recession that this was the right thing to do? Uh, well, yeah, but this was back when the Arab Spring started in 2011 and, and Tunisia and Egypt and so on. And- this was, you know, 2011, 2012, I can't remember when the protests were, and there were protests in, in, in Beirut um, that were calling for an overhaul of, um, of the political system. And, um, I, you, you know, I, and they, they happened to be around the time that I would go back to Lebanon, you know, I barely had to change my schedule, my schedule. I just changed it a few days uh, back and forth. And I did attend a few of these uh, demonstrations and, you know, a lot of the things that the demonstrators were calling for then was an overhaul of the political system. Um, and, um, I mean, you know, that obviously the protests were unsuccessful. Um, nothing really changed much. And, you know, a lot of the demonstrators were, were forecasting that if things didn't change, that things would um, come crashing down. And lo and behold, here we are. Yep, yep. And, and, and I think, yeah, thinking now in retrospect, I think uh, those demonstrators were doing the right thing. And I think also, I mean, I was there during the October 17th uh, protests and onwards. And I think, uh, and what bothers me is that a lot of these uh, demonstrators truly uh, wanted this uh, change to happen, but were not able to do so. And hence, uh, all the frustrations that are uh, ongoing right now and the continued decline of the country uh, at this point, I mean, you know, every time these demonstrations come up, there's always accusations of of these demonstrations being um, uh, kind of be, being orchestrated and, and so on. I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people there. All I can say is uh, the people that I encountered in the demonstrations, they were all kind of genuinely uh, wanting the, wanting the best, uh, wanting the best, and and and. and you know, um, I mean, these demonstrations, prob- you know, possibly did not have a completely organized um, agenda of how to change the country, um, but uh, but obviously a change was sorely needed. And, and I mean, it was obvious then, and it's more obvious now. But uh, for some reason, uh, the large, you know, as 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 bigger and bigger the catastrophes uh, uh, um, occur, um, the less and less it appears. That the political system can change, uh, but that's, I mean, that's beyond, that's beyond anything that I can come up with. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, we can we can see what went on this year and all the trials trials for change uh, that people did. I mean, if you think about it, how much can one country sustain? I mean, you had uh, the the complete economic crash and the complete banking uh, sector uh, crash that happened starting in October and is still getting worse to this day without any plan of fixing it and without any deal with the International Monetary Fund to fix it. Then you got the August 4th Beirut explosion, which was massive. 
uh, with no accountability so far and nobody placed in jail at this point due to that explosion, which is which is crazy in any other country, I think, in the world. And on top of that, you've got the COVID-19 pandemic uh, now being completely out of control, also because of significant mismanagement uh, that happened in the country. So it's just a lot of mismanagement that has led to a multitude of disasters that are occurring in the country at this point. And, and I think... You know, that's the curse. Uh, you know, that's the curse of yeah. being Lebanese. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I can't compare my experience to the Lebanese who were in Lebanon throughout all these crises. Um, but, um, you know, just being here so far away and hearing one after another, um, you know, first with the assassination of the prime minister, we were in the U.S. at the time, Iowa City, and then one assassination after another, um, one crisis after another, one explosion after another. Every day you wake up and you wonder, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of us lost some people, uh, you know, it's impacted all of us in different ways. And this is independent of, uh, of our field. I know this is, this is called the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, but just being Lebanese in general, um, I mean, the banking system, I mean, my parents had most of the retirement savings in Lebanese banks. Uh, my uncle's business is in, in the port, in the harbor where the explosion happened. Thankfully, uh, nobody uh, nobody got hurt. Just a lot of property damage from from our standpoint. Um, but it's it's you resign yourself to the fate of being Lebanese and just just one of these things, you know, of waking up one day and hearing about yet another catastrophe. Right, and I think that's why a lot of people are getting. I mean, a lot of people want to change, and they still want change. But a lot of people have gotten frustrated with the system and have decided to. Uh, to pack up and leave, and uh, but some other people, uh, which I know, some of them I know, some of them are physicians I've worked with. I mean, I talked to one of them a couple of weeks ago, and and he said, "I'm staying." He's like, "I'm gonna try the hardest possible to stay." And I know this guy has his way out, but he he's like, "I'm gonna try the hardest possible to stay. I don't want to leave. I'm gonna just keep fighting." And I'm impressed actually by these people, just because at this point it seems like you're fighting a system that cannot change. And you are living uh, under under some under uh, a political system that is using you and abusing you, uh, and not providing you with, with anything. Um, and well, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know that that uh, that person, that physician that you're talking about, has a way out. It, it right. feels like if you're Lebanese, you need to have a way out. <laughs> Even if you right. decide to stay in the country, <laughs> you need to be working on um, some plan B, right? And, right, right, and right. Not not uh, most Lebanese can't do that. That's unfortunate. You know, I mean, most Lebanese may not have access to a plan, to a plan B, right, uh, which right. is sad. You know, we, we did, we, uh, I'm a dual citizen right now. So, um, and, and that's something, and that's the sad thing is there's a brain drain now. Um, everybody who has any opportunity or resources is considering leaving the country. And I know many have already left, uh, you know, right. with you and your family being, uh, right, being, right, um, right. And, 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 and I think, I mean, and, and and that brings us brings me to another topic, which which uh, reminds me of us. I mean, I was there. I worked with uh, with a lot of students and and trainees and residents who were great trainees and students who uh, also want uh, a future uh, in medicine. Uh, and at this point, it seems the future is not good if they just decide to train and stay in Lebanon and work without going outside. 
Uh, and the issue with, with that is uh, a lot of them, if they want to go to the U.S., to Germany, to the U.K., to, to even France or other countries, they have to sit for, for exams, they have to go do electives, meet people, and, and all of this costs what we call, quote-unquote, fresh dollars and not the money that, that currently you, you have in Lebanese banks, which is local dollars or lollars or biras or... Uh, or whatever uh, term that has been coined uh, coined for this money, and and some of them point blank told me, I mean we 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 have difficulty going to the U.S. at this point because our parents' money is all stuck in the Lebanese banks and it's going to be very hard for them to pay all this money for us to do our U.S. MLEs, uh, and that made me feel bad because I feel that they may not have the same opportunities that we had ourselves, or if they do, it's much harder for them to to navigate them. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with all that. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's yet an additional uh, obstacle now placed for, for Lebanese medicine graduates. Right, um, right. And as, as we know, you know, I, I don't know what the, the statistics are, but I, right, correct me if I'm wrong, Khalid, but there's um, way too many medical school graduates um, in Lebanon, than, uh, more than the country can, can absorb. So it's like uh, the way, I mean, for the size of the country, we have too many medical school graduates. So it's like the system was made to export, to ex to, to export physicians. So um, there needs to be some facilitation, some help for all these graduates that, that uh, um, have yet another door closed in their face. Right. And, and that, and part, part of this, I think is again, uh, lack of governmental planning because you always have to assess how many graduates of each uh, field or profession you need in the country before you accept to open more programs. Uh, and I'm sure this was not assessed. And now you have more than seven medical schools in a country of 4.5 million people, which is, which is crazy. Uh, probably yeah, if you look at California, more, yeah, if you look at California. more a testament to the Lebanese political system, chaos and lack of oversight and planning. Right, right, right. And I think as, as we talk, I mean, that's what I'm doing. Part of the reason I'm doing this podcast also is as we talk to different physicians in the diaspora and in, in Lebanon is to try to see if we can devise ways to help these students uh, be able to uh, achieve what they want to achieve and, uh, and go to the U.S. or any other country that they want to train in without having... Uh, the economic situation uh, or money as a hindrance to them to them to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think I think that this was a good uh, this was a good discussion, uh, Dr. Amir Ashley, and uh, uh, I think uh, we we we've discussed quite a bit about uh, about the country, about the situation there, and about our connections to to the country. Do you have anything to? Yeah, no, I mean, um, I mean, uh, you know, in addition to all of this, of course, all this, uh, all this has come has come crashing down at the time that the pandemic is going on, and, and uh, uh, you know, hospital uh, facilities are scarce now in, in Lebanon, which just, you know, you're always afraid for your family. You know, you're always afraid for your family. If anybody, um, if anybody needed to be hospitalized right now, whether it's for a coronavirus infection or or, or otherwise. Um, I myself, since you know you're uh, you're interviewing um, uh, individuals to hear their story, um, you know we started off this podcast uh, with how frequently I went back to Lebanon. Well, I haven't been to Lebanon now in over uh, in over a year, so this is the longest that I've been away from Lebanon since I left all those years ago and, and came to the U.S. Um, 
Yep. So that's just kind of an added, uh, an added stress. I haven't seen my parents also in over a year. So yeah, that's just something else that we live with. Right. And I, and I think, I mean, since you mentioned uh, the situation there right now, I, mean, I can tell you the, the, the bed situation seems to be very tight. Uh, and in all the hospitals and and in, in, in some situations, I mean, the Red Cross has to leave patients outside of the ERs uh, sitting there uh, wow. for their families to try to find beds. And then they give them oxygen in their cars uh, uh-huh. or they get them into the gates, put them outside, give them oxygen because there's no beds for them that are available. And then when people, when people get admitted, I mean, the, there's medications that people cannot find. It's all in the black market. Uh, I have numbers now of like, pharmacies on the black market where you can buy your remdesivir or wow. baracetinib or, or whatever medicine that you might need for uh, for your uh, COVID-19 pneumonia. Uh, not Decadron for sure, that's pretty easy to find, but if you, if you want to go beyond that, uh, it's a lot of this is on the black market and even oxygen is not to be found as easily now and, and, and some people are asking for fresh dollars to provide people with oxygen. So it's, it's, wow. it's hard for people to even get sick and let alone get treated when they, when they get sick. Yeah. Uh, so this is part there of the situation. Yep, exactly, exactly. So uh, yeah, Dr. Anachi, thank you for, uh, for being on this uh, podcast with us. And uh, so thank you for listening uh, to this podcast. Again, it was with Dr. Wael Amar Ashley, who is currently an associate professor at the University of California. Uh, San Diego. And hopefully in our next uh, uh, podcasts, I will discussing with some people who are uh, uh, doing some initiatives towards Lebanon. And I'm, and I'm trying to get to discuss too with uh, some of the physicians uh, practicing currently in uh, Lebanon to get their perspective on the situation uh, there. Uh, thank you very much, very much for listening.